Paul says, I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. First off, I am rejoicing in my sufferings. Notice for Paul, almost every single time he uses the word suffering, he has to also bring up the word rejoicing. Throughout all of his letters, if the theme of suffering comes up for Paul, the theme of joy comes up. Or if the theme of suffering comes up, the theme of the eternal glory comes up. But he has to frame his suffering in a meaningful way. You'll notice this if you look around. Every single human in this world suffers. Suffering is inescapable. Suffering is universal. And suffering is profound and deep. But not everybody lives a meaningful life. Suffering, everyone has. But meaning, a meaningful life, not everyone has. And Paul is saying, listen... Everybody suffers, but not everybody can rejoice like we can. Not everybody has a cause that is so glorious and so beautiful and so significant that when you give your life to it, in spite of all the hard things, it, the, the hard things elsewhere, you remember this, right? Second Corinthians where he says that our light and momentary afflictions are attaining for us an eternal weight of glory. The word glory in the Hebrew means is kavod, and it means heavy. So he's contrasting these sufferings, these things that feel so heavy now, in reality are light and momentary, but what has eternal weight when tips on the scales between the suffering of now and the glory of tomorrow, the weight of glory is so much heavier that it's not even worth comparing. And he says right here, I'm rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake. Why? Because he, he, they're meaningful. They have purpose. They have intentionality. They have, there's, a, there's an actual cause. There's a map. He, this is not just random suffering. This is purposeful suffering. I'm rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake, for the Colossians' sake? What do you mean, Paul? Remember, he's never met these people. You recall this? His friend Epaphras is the one who introduced them to Jesus. And he only knows them through reports. But I think he knows them in the Spirit. You know how you can know somebody in the Spirit? Let's just make that an actual question instead of a theoretical question. How can you know someone in the Spirit... You actually know the answer. You're just afraid that if you say it, it's not going to be what I'm thinking of. When you pray for someone a lot, when you intercede for someone a lot, when you spend time with Jesus, talking to Jesus on their behalf, asking for his blessings, that his grace would come and strengthen them and establish them, that they would resist temptation, that they would follow him, that he would make their paths pleasing to him. When you spend time in the place of prayer, you get to know people in the Spirit. You can know things in the spirit that you didn't know because somebody told you or you saw it on social media, but you knew it in your gut, in your belly. I got a friend who one day she sent me a text that she'd been praying for me and she sent me a scripture. And I said, man, that is so on point and encouraging. And she said, well, do you want to see my prayer journals for you? And I'm like, what do you mean your prayer journals for me? And she proceeded to send me a list of dates and scriptures that went back like months. 
And, and, if, and if I had correlated what I was going through and what I was feeling and what I was experiencing with the scripture she had been praying for me, it would have been uncanny to see the, the word in due season that she happened, that the Lord dropped into her spirit. And she wouldn't have necessarily claimed that it was prophetic, but I guarantee you it was. Because what is prophecy? It's the witness of the spirit of Jesus. Prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. So he's suffering for their sake. That's interesting. And then here's this amazing passage that has kind of been captivating and haunting and unsettling for years. And in my flesh, I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. How could anything be lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church? Is it not a finished work? Isn't that the hallmark of gospel preaching? That Jesus paid it all? The Hebrews says that once for all, that then after he offered once for all the real sacrifice, that the Old Testament sacrifices were only shadows of, that then he sat down in heaven in the true tabernacle? Isn't it done? Didn't he say it is finished and then give up his spirit? So what is Paul talking about? I complete what is still lacking in terms of the sufferings, the bodily sufferings of Jesus for God's people. What does he mean? Let's just keep going. I became the church's servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you, and that was this, to make the word of God fully known. What does your translation say? Verse 25, to make the word of God what? Fully known. To proclaim his entire message. In the Greek, it's that word, that special word that I've talked to you about before. God's commission, says Paul, God's commission to me, God's mandate to me when I was laid hold of and purpose came into my life. My commission was to proclaim the word of God in its pleroma, in its fullness. Now, how do you proclaim the word of God in its fullness? Is that a matter of teaching? Is that a matter of knowledge? Is that a matter of information? He's saying, I, in order to, in order to preach the word fully, I have to manifest in my body the same sufferings of Jesus he manifested in his body. And if I, if I, it's a proclamation, but it's a demonstration. It's a, it's a message about a God who loves you so much that he laid down his life. But if that message isn't accompanied by a life that is being laid down for you, then the word of God isn't fully proclaimed. That Jesus, once for all, suffered in his body the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And now Paul is saying, I am continuing that path of the Spirit, suffering in my body to bring others to God. I'm not replacing the sacrifices of Jesus. I am expressing them. The sacrifice of Jesus is taking on the same shape in my life that it did in his. The Spirit of God, I remember Dallas Willard just rocked me with this one day. He said, the Spirit of Jesus 
wants to do in your life exactly what he did in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, when he calls the disciples, he says, like Luke chapter 9, that we are to take up our cross daily and follow him. Or Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I die daily. What does that mean? When he says he dies daily, but he's still alive, he clearly can't be talking about physical death any more than Jesus is literally saying that every single day you're going to be killed and crucified. So what is he calling you to die to daily? And what is Paul saying? He is suffering as he is just trying to express God loves you, be reconciled to God. He's trying to get everybody in on this Christ thing. He's got kind of two goals. Uncover those who are, are, are pre-believers and take those who are believers all the way up to maturity. Well, actually, I'll just read it to you real quick. I became the church's servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery that had been hidden through the ages and generations but has now been revealed to his saints. To them, the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's, it's he whom we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil and struggle with all the energy that he powerfully inspires within me. So he knows, he knows. He knows his mission. He knows his mandate. He knows his purpose. And he also knows that the sufferings he's experienced in the path of fulfilling this calling are purposeful. They're inevitable. They are necessary. They are unavoidable. And they are purposeful. Do you know it? Are you still shocked when stuff happens that, you, that shouldn't have happened? Are you still shocked when you're rejected, when you're blamed wrongly, when you're misunderstood, when you're slandered? Are you still shocked when friends leave you? Are you still surprised? Are you still, still surprised when you get the news about the bad cancer report? Like, suffering happens to everyone, and special kinds of suffering happen uniquely to the person who takes the gospel on. More suffering than if you didn't. And Paul says he understands that it's necessary, unavoidable, and he rejoices in it because he knows the why behind it. Let's cross-reference a couple of things here. A friend of mine contacted me a few years back. I'm going to take you over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 real quick. A friend of mine contacted me a few years back, just so frustrated. Frustrated with church. Frustrated with the parents. Frustrated with the kids. Frustrated with the politics of it. Frustrated that when he tried to do good and the kids seemed to be on fire, the parents seemed to get offended and want to pull the kids from the church. It just didn't make sense to him. And he was fed up and he was thinking, maybe I ought to leave this. Maybe I ought to do something else with my life. And I sat there and I listened to him for a while. Just tell me how you're feeling. He was feeling terrible. The hassle. It was too much hassle, too much pain, too much misunderstanding. He was being called evil when he was just good. His motives were good. 
He just wanted to help the kids. And he was helping the kids. The kids had been changing. The kids had been falling in love with Jesus, taking on higher levels of responsibility. And by the way, taking on higher levels of responsibility is the most happy and free place you can be in this life. That's actually part of the point. We don't exist so we can have leisure time. We exist so we can take responsibility and find joy in it. You know that, right? Heaven's not vacation. It's getting back to the original purposeful work we had in the beginning. Right? It's why what we do for fun is pretend work. Look at it. Everything we do for fun is pretend work. You go, well, yeah, but not sitting in the bathtub, <laughs> sitting on the beach. So I listened to him for a while as he was essentially telling me, it's too much hassle, too much frustration, too much misunderstanding, too much headache, too many troubles. I could do something else for Jesus where it wouldn't hurt so bad. <laughs> I would disagree with that. I listened for a while and then I read him this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. We are always carrying, the, we are always carrying in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. This was the verse I gave him. I said, here's what's going on, buddy. How are you doing? He's like, bad. How's that kid doing that you just described? She's on fire. She's thriving in Jesus. Was she before? No. So she's, she's elevated in her walk with Jesus, correct? Yes. And how are you doing? Mom, her mom hates me. Her mom th- so you're having a hard time, right? You wish there was a way to bring her to that place in, G- in Jesus without you having to suffer, don't you? It's not possible. I said, verse 12 is your verse, buddy. Death is at work in us, but life in you. Tim, there's got to be a better way. Well, then you're trying to be smarter than Jesus if you think there's got to be a better way. Well, I don't know if I want to pay that cost, Tim, to see the world come to life, to see people come to life. Well, I don't know what to tell you because life's already suffering. You might as well make it meaningful by falling in love with Jesus and laying your life down and surrendering to him. You can either lose your life in this life and find it in him and then have him pay back ultra rewards or you can hold on to your life and lose everything in the end and have nothing. Those are the options. We know this, right? Everybody suffers, everybody loses, everybody fails, everybody falls, but not everybody rises, not everybody receives an eternal weight of glory, not everybody lives. It's cliche, right? Everybody dies, not everybody lives. It's true, though. It's true. Let me take you somewhere else. Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, 7, Yet whatever gains I had, these I've come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, everything, I regard everything as a loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. What do you mean, Paul? See, we don't think of it that way, do we? We think of best and good, and we hope we can get the best and also all the good. And Paul Paul says, actually, every other good thing is in competition with the best thing. And what used to be, what what I used to think life was about, I now consider a distraction and in competition with that which it's really about, which is Jesus. And things I used to think were an advantage, religion, 
I now consider not, not just a distraction, but a, but a, damaging, a damaging negative. Not, a, not just a one or a two, but a negative. Everything is loss, not neutral, loss compared to knowing Jesus. And he says, I've suffered the loss of all things. Okay, suffered the loss of all things. That is starting to get us in this territory of understanding what does he mean when he says he's dying daily in 1 Corinthians 15. He suffered the loss of all things. What does that mean? And he goes into detail about his sufferings in, in 2 Corinthians pretty clearly. His shipwrecks and his sleepless nights and how he's regarded as an imposter but he's sincere and he doesn't have the clothes he wants and he, he doesn't have the comfortable pillow and bed he, he wants. And many times one of the hardest things he talks about is not those physical things, though those are true, but some of the hardest things he talks about is the betrayals of his friends. In 2 Corinthians 1, he lists people by name who were ashamed to be with him because of his chains. His reputation, he had, he had such a bad reputation with the Jewish community that his friends backed away from associating with him. That hurt him worse than the beatings and the floggings. He names these people in his letters. You've got to love Paul. He's salty. He names the, this guy because he was in love with this present world has abandoned me. Even that guy abandoned me. Afraid of the shame of being associated with me. But Onesiphorus, may God bless him. Onesiphorus came and visited me in prison. He thought of me. He came. He visited me multiple times. He, he, he cheered me on. He encouraged my spirit. May God bless him on that day. But the, what were the sufferings for Paul? The biggest ones, the deepest ones, was the social stuff. What did he give up to follow Jesus? Dude, you remember he was a leader of the Pharisees, right? He was tribe of Benjamin, regard to the law of faultness, they laid, their, they laid their cloaks when they were stoning Stephen in Acts chapter 8, when they were 7 or 8. Harvey, you know your Bible better than me. Yeah, because in 8, a great persecution broke out against the church after they killed him, and the, and the saints were scattered all over the known world. So they accidentally finally fulfilled Acts 1-8, Acts which is... Uh, Go be witnesses in all the known world. They stayed in Jerusalem until the great persecution drove them against their will to finally obey what they should have been obeying. Anyway, so yeah. Whose feet did they put their coats at when they were stoning Stephen? It was Saul's. He was the one standing there as the ringleader saying, get him, boys. Thinking he was doing a service to God, which is what Jesus said, right? The time will come when anyone who kills you will think they're actually doing God a service. They will 100% believe in their integrity, their cause, and they will believe that you are the villain and they are the innocent ones. So not only will they not regret what they're doing or feel bad about what they're doing, they will believe what they're doing is right, righteous, good. They'll feel 100% pure and clean in it. So Paul knows that the way for life to come to someone else is for the suffering that Jesus endured for the sake of others. Yes, his cross, but the posture of the cross, the lifestyle of the cross, the, 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 the heart attitudes that were behind the cross operated every single day of his life. Every, every day of his yeses, every day of his loving those who didn't deserve love, but in the Father's heart, they were still worthy of love. Does that make sense? Because God sees past what we're doing to who he created us to be. 
And he loves us until who he created us to be is what comes to the forefront. I was talking with the Teen Challenge guys this week, and I just spoke to them about God as creator the same way I talked to you guys about God as creator last Sunday. And one of the observations I was making is whatever else Christian worship is, it involves the, the, the profound affirmation that it is good to exist in God's world. That, it is my, that I am a being who should exist. I have worth. I should be here. That's an interesting idea. And he should be thanked for, for doing this good thing of making me in this world, right? Remember, and God saw that it was good. And then the creation in worship is echoing back. Yeah, you're right. It is good that we exist. And it's really good that you made us. But what covers over the worship? I told the Teen Challenge guys, there's really two directions that our hearts move in this life. We either move toward the affirmation of that our life has value and we give a big thank you to God in worship, or we move away from that to the affirmation that everything stinks and I should have never been born. That the opposite of worship is moving in the direction of suicide. That sounds really stark and really harsh, but it's true. And so what is it that, that creates this huge group of people who are like, ah! you're worthy it's when the cross removes the shame and the guilt and the blame of all the sins we've committed that have infected who we are it's when you remove all that guilt that weight then all of a sudden we can feel like it is good to exist God is good life is good I'm glad I'm here I like me and I like you you should know Jesus and Paul's spending his whole life with great cost telling everyone about this Jesus. In the years past, he says, this gospel message that centers in the person of Jesus, we didn't know it. We thought it was, be a good Jew. We used to think, says Paul, that Genesis 12, that God calls Abraham and says, hey, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. I will bless you. And I will make you a blessing, and whoever blesses you will be blessed, and whoever curses you will be cursed, and through you I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth. We used to think, says Paul, that this was about God's covenant with us, and that we kept covenant with God through law-keeping. Now we know that the whole point of the covenant with Abraham was to bless everybody through Abraham's people. Well, really, Abraham's seed. And now we know that the seed is Jesus, and now we know that the real people of God are both Jews and Gentiles who have Jesus living on the inside. That everyone gets in. And that our nature gets restored back to the image of God, which is love. This is all recap. You all know this. And Paul says, we didn't know it in the past, but now God's revealed it to us. And now that God's revealed it to us, I've sold out. I've given up everything I was about before. And I'm throwing my whole lot in with knowing Jesus, with selling Jesus, basically. He's a door-to-door -door salesman. And we think of salesmen as dirty. But what if their product genuinely does make your life better? And what if they don't care if they make any money? <laughs> That's Paul. He'll do it free of charge. He'll, he's glad if you support him, but he'll do it free of charge if you think he's only doing it for the money. Because his thing is Jesus every day, 24-7, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. In Acts chapter 20, he says, I've, I didn't shrink back from declaring anything to you that would be helpful. You know why? 
What does that mean you wouldn't shrink back? What happens when you tell people what they're called to repent from? They don't like it, do they? What happens when you tell people this is the idol you've been worshiping? It doesn't go so hot. What happens when you call people to turn away from everything that's killing them to embrace this thing they've never even known exists? It doesn't go so hot for a lot of people. The cost is high to evangelize. The cost is high to be a missionary. The cost is high to be a church planter. The cost is high to be any kind of Christian doing any kind of significant ministry if you're sold out. But if you don't pay the high cost, you don't get the extreme joy. I didn't even read this passage yet, did I? I said, turn to Philippians 3, and I didn't get to it. Whatever gains I had, these I've come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as a loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. It comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that's based on, on faith. Verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. See, you can't have one without the other. You can't have power of the resurrection without the fellowship of his sufferings. You can't have knowing him without the fellowship of his sufferings. I'm telling you right now, I feel like there's an American Christianity that when stuff breaks down and when things go wrong and when it hurts, we think, what did we do wrong? Paul would not think that way. We're always going to be asking what we can learn. We're always asking how we can repent. That's not what I'm saying. But we Americans think that a suffering, like a, a, life, a life of suffering is somehow, I, we're, we're ashamed of human weakness. We're ashamed of human failure. We're ashamed of not being the winners. It makes it very difficult to rejoice in sufferings when you feel like the suffering is evidence that God's somehow not with you. Am I making any sense? And Paul says, if it doesn't work another way. The super apostles, the fake apostles, they're the winners. The real apostles with integrity, he says, are like at the end, at the end of the parade and people don't seem to like them. It's so funny. His letters are the ones that are in the Bible. We don't even know who those guys were, but in his time, they were the ones headlining the conferences that everyone wanted to have. Lay your hands on me, bro. They're forgotten and he's remembered. He shaped the history of Western civilization through his letters. But in his time, he was the afterthought. And how would he have known that sitting in prison, writing letters, he, do you think he knew he was doing his most significant enduring work? Rejected by his friends, sitting alone, writing letters to churches because he was really worried about how those churches were doing? You think he knew that his letters would shape thought for an entire, for 2,000 years of Western civilization? I mean, Jesus is the Lord, but Paul's the teacher who explains Jesus better than anyone. That's shocking. That's really surprising. 
You just don't know. And the fact that he was able to rejoice in his suffering and keep ministering in his brokenness was the key. The whole goal of the enemy, because there is a goal, there is a strategy of the devil, is to get you and I to think self-preservation. To get you and I to think there's got to be a better use of my life than this. And quit on the thing Jesus has called us to. It's what, it's what he did with Job, right? Hey, Job's selfish. He only loves you, God, because his life's easy. But if you'll just let me at him, you'll see. He'll curse you and die. And, of course, his wife was unhelpful. That was literally word for word what she told him. Job, why are you still holding on to your integrity? Just curse God and die. He hasn't been faithful to you. And Job said, look, I agree, he hasn't been faithful to me, but I want to know why. I demand a meeting. I love that. And he got his meeting. And when he got his meeting, he didn't hear what he wanted to hear. God didn't say, oh, my bad. God said, I'm God, okay? And Job said, my bad. Yes, you are. And he returned to his original position. And then his stuff was restored. But I almost sometimes wish that his stuff didn't get restored at the end because a lot of people's lives end like Jim Elliot. You go, you be a missionary, you learn the language, you love the people, and then they kill you with arrows and spears, and then you die. Oh, what's the rest of the story? Then you live forever in heaven. The whole tribe realizes later, hey, wait a minute, we screwed up. They meet Jesus. But it didn't happen in his life the way he would have wanted it. It's interesting, isn't it? There's a lot of people right now on planet Earth that would say Jim Elliot wasted his life because they don't believe what you and I believe. They would say, Jim Elliott should go home. He should have gone home, raised a family, worked a regular Joe job, watched a lot of TV, taught the kids how to ride bike, walked them walked down the aisle when they got married, if they're, you know, his daughters. What a waste, what a shame. I remember hanging out and talking to a liberal Christian lady, and I say she's a liberal Christian lady because of what I'm about to say. Back in Kentucky, she did not have a grid for martyrdom. She did not have a grid for going and, and being a missionary to Muslim people. This was soon after 9-11, when the whole country was, and I was too, up in arms, wanting to go to war with Iraq or Afghanistan or somebody or anybody. And people were saying, what if we send them missionaries instead of bombs? What if we send them missionaries instead of soldiers? Well, they'll kill them. It'll be a waste of those people's lives. Will it, or will it, will it be a fullness of the preaching of the gospel? Not just a message, but a life being laid down of loving your enemy to the fullest. Well, that's a waste of a life. So I'm talking to this lady, and she just didn't have a grid for it. What a waste. What a waste. Why would you do that? Those people hate you. Why would you do that? Isn't that fascinating? If I would have said, are you a Christian? She would have said, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. I was born here in Kentucky. 
I'm a Republican, I'm a Christian. But the fact that she would view going to serve Muslim people in love, to love them, to show them the love of Jesus, in in the hope that they could get to know him, even if they kill you, the fact that she would view that as a waste of a life lets me know that she doesn't understand anything about the gospel. And the fact that you and I are so quick to despair when things get tough and hard, that it's so foreign to us to rejoice in our sufferings when our suffering comes in the path of obedience to Jesus, that we're so slow to love our enemies and so quick to resent them, that we care so much what people say about us and think about us, makes me think maybe we don't either. It doesn't feel very encouraging to say out loud. This week I started meeting with Mark Yoder. He still hasn't made up his final decision as to whether or not he wants to take us on and take me on as to mentor me. But he went ahead and started. He said, well, let's start with point one of me mentoring you. Tim, you ain't smart enough to figure it out. Uh-huh. He said, no, you ain't. You ain't smart enough to figure it out. You ain't smart enough to fix yourself so your marriage works. You ain't smart enough to figure it out so the church goes the way it's supposed to. You ain't smart enough to fix it so that you're no longer an addict. You ain't smart enough to figure it out. Your intelligence and your hard work is not your answer. It'll never be. You want to know what your answer is, Tim? Your answer is grace. Your answer is God. Your answer is the goodness of Jesus operating in and through you and for you. And you know how you get in on that grace, Tim? You surrender. He said, Tim, every single morning I surrender. I surrender my wife. I surrender my kids. I surrender my business. I surrender my ministry. I surrender my reputation. I surrender my friendships. I surrender my, the rest of my days, however long I have. I surrender anything that comes up in my heart that I think might cause me to want to step back and compromise and start to think for myself out of fear and self-protection. Anything like that that causes me to, to leave a place of peace behind and think for myself, I surrender it. I have to do it every single day, Tim. And if whatever I surrender to him becomes his property, and then it's his problem. And then I get to sit back and watch him work. He said, so that's your assignment. I'm like, oh boy. St- starting in on the, on the deep end there, bro. <laughs> to obey is better than sacrifice. What does he want, guys? What life has he called us to? Paul knows. Paul knows that in the Old Testament, the only acceptable worship is costly. Their sacrifices were literal animals, but our sacrifices are little actions of obedience and surrender. And it was the costly worship that God was pleased with in the Old Testament, and it's still the costly worship he's pleased with now. Remember how David did it the first time they took the ark? They took the ark of the covenant up to Jerusalem. And he was so excited, he was so thrilled, he was so happy. And then Uzzah reached out because the ark looked like it was going to fall over and he wasn't about to let that happen. And he reached out his hand to steady the ark and God struck him dead right then and there. Because he was not to touch the ark. No human was to touch the ark. Only the Levites were allowed to hold rods through these specialized hook things, hook and ring and hook things that they... They could touch the poles. They own, and only they could. 
But David didn't read the fine print, didn't actually read the commands of the Lord, didn't set himself to gain the information he needed to do that in a way that was pleasing to the Lord. And he was all mad at God. Isn't that interesting? He didn't do the homework, but he was mad at God. There's a proverb that says, a man's own sin ruins his life, and then he rails against the Lord. A woman's own sin ruins her life, and then she rails against the Lord. We looked at Psalm 1 this, this last week on Wednesday, and we said that whoever the man is who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night, God will make their life like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and the leaf doesn't wither and whatever he does prospers. Why? Two reasons. Number one, they're living out the wisdom of God's design and intention so life works the way it's supposed to so that even if God had absenteed himself and was standing over just watching, their life would still be more blessed than the other guy. That's the first reason. The second reason is God's not absent. God's intimately, actively involved, orchestrating and blessing and walking with you as you obey him. He's establishing you and a hand goes before to prepare the way and another hand is on your shoulder guiding you. I better shut this down. Why don't you go ahead and stand? We'll come back to this next week or, or whenever I preach again because this passage has too much going on with it and I didn't exhaust it. Your life is hard. Everyone's life is hard. But are you surrendered enough to a cause that is so great as to make the suffering of your life not take the meaning of your life? Most people's lives at the end of the day, it's like I sat around, I worked. Man, when I worked at the factory in Middlebury, Indiana, making shelves, nothing wrong with making shelves. It was a good job. I, made, I met good friends there. But I remembered seeing these people are working six days a week. Every time they have overtime, it's mandatory. There's no flexibility. You work when the machine tells you to work. You jump and you say how high. And the thing that enabled these people to give most of their lives to pulling a lever over and over was that I could get new hubcaps on my car that spun backwards. And then they die. Is that a meaningful life, guys? Man, you were made for more than that. And I'm not saying that you couldn't work at that factory and do ministry and love people well and be filled with the Spirit and take every opportunity to do kingdom while you were there. But, but most weren't. Most weren't. They were living for the hubcaps and for the cool, comfortable air conditioner they could watch Netflix at the end of a long day. Actually, there was no Netflix then, but now. Man, life is too hard to waste. Might as well like, maximize its meaning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you, you are the treasure. You're the treasure that Paul found. You revealed yourself to Paul as beautiful and glorious and the one that he'd been aching for and yearning for and searching for all his life, you made yourself known to him. You, you laid claim to his heart and it actually stuck. It was not head knowledge, it was relationship, it was depth. And he became obsessed and he sold out and he said yes to you. And he paid high prices and he walked with you faithfully. He was just a man like us. He was no more special than us. He didn't live in a more special time than us. He didn't have unique advantages that we lack. Each one of us, God, you have a call on each one of our lives. You have a purpose for each one of our lives. I pray right now in Jesus' name that you would show us how to surrender to you.
What must be yielded to you to know you more, to walk with you more? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would train us and teach us how to rejoice with setbacks and view them as acceptable. They're worth it. They're hard things. They're not good things, but we're, we're so in a path with you that it's worth paying them. God, I ask that you would put in us a hatred of sin and a love of righteousness and fill us with your joy.